Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 27, where we're traveling back to 1969, and the 24th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Karel Husa, otherwise known as Karel Goose, for his third string quartet. That's a little... If you got You're throwing in your check. To, yes, yeah. Husa means goose. So, uh, Andrew, what do you know about Karel uh, Husa? Well, I know Karel Husa from band. I know, a lot of <laughs> well, big A lot of people, yeah. yeah. Especially... Um, music for Prague, 1968, same year as this piece, mm-hmm. and Apothe- Apotheosis of This Earth, which is also an excellent band piece. That's a like another three movement, like yeah, a big, big yeah, piece. Big yeah, piece. so both both big weighty pieces uh, composed very close to each other. But really, that's about what I know Carl Husser for. <laughs> I know that he composed in tons of different, but my experiences with him have been pretty much around those two pieces. Mm-hmm. What about you? Uh, pretty much the same. I, I knew him as an institution at Ithaca. Or at Cornell and Ithaca, kind of in that, that well, both schools. He taught at both yeah. schools, uh, and so I knew him as a pedagogue. He was always listed on the faculty as a distinguished person. Uh, and then, yeah, for music for Prague was kind of a, the one that everybody knows. I read that it was recorded over a hundred, I don't know, many, many times, a thousand times, something like that around yeah. the world. So very popular. It's clearly his most performed piece. Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, far and away. Absolutely. So it was interesting to learn that there that he wrote a lot more uh, and and basically everything except opera. So he was very well versed, very very prolific. Mm-hmm. Well, he's a Czech composer, yes. which is of course close to your heart. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, this is a. It's interesting because he's a Czech composer who became American because of communism at the time, uh, and. He's not usually lumped into the typical Czech composers like Janáček or Smetana or Dvořák. The twentieth, you know, much more contemporary. So, but but very interesting kind of pan-European background. So, being born in Prague, but then also having a French pedigree with Nadia Boulanger. Yes. You can't win a Pulitzer without studying no. with Nadia Boulanger. Oh, that's your card. And then uh, you also study with Honegger as well. So, kind of a neoclassic uh, background and. Uh, just a very interesting life than becoming a U.S. citizen. and But still, I, there was an interview I watched. Uh, he died in North Carolina in 2016. And he there was an interview on uh, YouTube. There was a performance of Music for Prague, and he was a very late interview. And he still had his accent, still had his Czech accent, and uh, talked about his homeland and how sad he was when the Soviets invaded at that time. So uh, very interesting. He's a Czech-American. I think that yeah. is an interesting combination. So that's how he could win the Pulitzer Prize. That's right. Exactly. Became an American citizen. Well, let's talk a little bit about telling the story. Telling the story. You know, this is really interesting. So he, as we said, he studied with Honegger and Nadia Boulanger. It was kind of neoclassic, then became really interested in this piece we're going to talk about, I think is very Bartoki, mm-hmm. very Absolutely. Kind of, yeah, Eastern Hungarian type. Not a Czech. Yeah, yeah, not, yeah, very much so, like Slavic uh, sounding. But 
I was reading, so he was studying between 1940 and 1945, Czechoslovakia was occupied by the Nazis. And they banned French music, they banned Russian music, of course. Yeah, uh, American wouldn't even be thought of. And so he's listening to this kind of style, and then he goes to France and has an awakening and kind of changes his view on things. So I can't imagine coming out of a study, because he started composing pretty late. Yeah. He yeah. Was, he's a late bloomer as a composer. He doesn't start composing until, um, well, he said he didn't even attend an orchestral concert until he's 19 years wow. old. So that sound world just wasn't part of his growing up. So I can't imagine coming out of that and then going into France and suddenly, you know, all you've heard are Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, <laughs> Brahms, a couple of Czech composers, and then you go to France. And you go to France post-World War II, right. which is one of the most avant-garde experimental times in that city. And you're hearing all that music and you're seeing what's happening with, you know, John Cage is coming over mm-hmm. from America. And that's what you're experiencing. What a culture shock. What a mind shift had to happen for him to go from Czechoslovakia <laughs> into France to make that study. And it's funny reading the story about how his experience with Boulanger, not like some of our previous winners who just adored her. I mean, he, they, they got along. They were He loved her. But... She didn't have much to say to him, which is kind of interesting. Said, uh, I didn't study her with her formally because she considered my mind to be already made up. Good teachers have to have an influence in their students' composing. So he kind of knew what he wanted, I guess, at yeah. that time. Pretty fully formed. Mm-hmm. Well, he was, I mean, he was older when he went to study with her. It's not the, the same kind of formative as a, you know, a young man coming like early, Copeland like Copeland or... or Piston or any of these composers we've talked about, Pulitzer winners before. He was a little bit older. He had already studied in Czechoslovakia before coming over. I mean, she was kind of like a a little icing on a cake that was already made in terms of his compositional process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And exposed him to a lot of the more neoclassical sounds uh, that I don't think they really appear too much in this piece, but uh, he kind of developed his own style. Yeah, his style is not, when, when we say Boulanger, and we talk about the composers, the American composers who had won before, clean lines, mm-hmm. clear forms, very nationalistic. Yeah, all this yeah. counterpoint. That's not Carl Husa. It's a very different kind of story. No. Let's talk a little about his aesthetic because I have this great quote from <laughs> Nicholas Lenimsky who was uh, full of great quotes. Yes, yes. And he said, he described uh, Husa's music saying, it has been oxygenated by humanistic romanticism. Hmm. Wonderfully evocative, but very. what do you think that means? Uh, oxygenated by humanistic romanticism. Uh, that it's contemporary, but there's still a bit of old or kind of a, a more humanistic approachable or, or something romanticism along, something about the past that's still there. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a balancing act. It's not completely new, but it is new, but it still has something in the past. I don't know. Is that... How do yeah, you hear it? To me, I read it more the humanistic romanticism that he, this music does sound very new and very yeah. <laughs> of the Avant-garde, time. Yeah. But it has a level of expression that oh. is extremely personal. And it's not even the George Crumb personal <laughs> expression that we've talked about before. Um, it's a more universal kind of expression. So I think again about music for Prague just because it's mm-hmm. the piece I know the most. And it's built on this impulse of seeing the communist tanks roll through the streets of Prague and seeing his hometown being invaded basically by Soviet Union. And he poured out his feelings into this piece, which you can definitely tell 
the the kind of overall emotionalism of that piece. Oh, yeah. So I think that's kind of what Slimms, from my mind, was getting at. But I, I like this idea also of this kind of balancing between the old and the new, which ties into someone studying with Onoguer or Boulanger. Mm-hmm. Those are two composers who did that in their music. Let alone writing in traditional forms. So string quartet, for example, here, he wrote a concerto for orchestra, he wrote concertos, all the usual types of forms. So, uh, yeah, an interesting uh, kind of conglomeration of things in his work. Yeah. Well, maybe it's time to go behind the notes. Behind the notes. All right, you have here in the studio, you have the recording, the first recording by the Fine Arts Quartet, which commissioned Carl Huss's Third String Quartet. Yes, I do. I don't know where I got this, but I'm I'm about all things Czech, so uh, I picked it up. And it's I'll, I'll point out that there's a, a pretty avant-garde painting on the front, but no less than one, two, three, four times does it say winner of the 1969 Pulitzer Prize. You think they're using that in the marketing? <laughs> completely. And I have the score here, too. And let's just open up the score. And what Andrew, what, read that for me. String Quartet number three. In parentheses, Pulitzer Prize, 1969. Yes, so they were going to make the most out of Husa winning here. And it, it all started when the Fine Arts Quartet, a famous string quartet, started playing his second quartet and just really was interested in it. And then they asked him to write a third quartet. Uh, and so he says here, so Yes, in October 1967, Leonard Sorkin, the first violinist, called me and asked if I would write a new quartet by March 1968. Now, it was a bit hectic because every January and February, I go abroad for about six weeks to conduct, and I was busy studying scores. Now, there's a composer. There's a composer. Yes, and this would not leave much time to compose. But I said, certainly. I think Leonard was a little surprised that I said it so quickly like that. But I came back from Europe in mid-February and wrote it in two weeks from sketches. That's remarkable. Yes. Two weeks. Two weeks. insane. Yeah. For four, it's a four movement work. It's a hefty work. Yeah. 20 minutes long. 20 minutes long. Yeah. It's got a slow or fast, slow, fast, slow uh, orientation here. And in terms of its material, I I don't know. We've talked a lot about in in the last few pieces, especially with our string quartets, about timbre. And I think there's a lot of that in here. But to me, it's more interesting he, he explores a lot of extended techniques. He does. He does. And he also gives each of the instruments of the quartet a movement to shine. Mm-hmm. So you start the first movement, has the viola um, basically carrying the melody. The second movement has the cello. The third movement, he splits it between the two violins. And then the final movement, they all kind of come in together. So he gives each P, each instrument. It's not like, hey, first violin and a bunch of accompaniment. No. Each one gets a moment to shine. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to see that later in Carter, uh, one of his quartets does, or was it the second quartet? Yeah. That, that, yeah. Yeah. Was, Carter was very interesting. He talked a lot about the characteristics that they're basically characters on stage right, in a drama. Right. And I kind of get that feeling here with Carl Husa and the way that he's treating the string quartet as mm-hmm. well. Very similar. Uh, I would say, so for me, the, the, uh, extended techniques really stand out. It's, kind of got a mixture of techniques of pitch and harmony. I think uh, there's some serial or aleatoric serial kinds of things in it too. It's not 12 tone, but you can tell it's very motivic and certain things keep coming back. 
Uh, it, I don't. It's very interesting. It's sort of night music. You've, that's why I said the bar talk. The bar stuff. talk is very strong. Yeah, you kind of have a little bit of everything in twentieth century string quartet. It sounds yeah. like Janáček in some spots. Yeah, that first movement is very bar talky. Oh to yeah, me. all the oh, pizzicato. Yeah. That like you say that night music just kind of humming along in the background underneath the viola. All that is very. Very Bartokian to me. In fact, I have a little bit of a moment uh, because one of the interesting things to me about that first movement um, is you reach these moments and he marks sections by putting everyone to sing in unison. Yeah. And then they spread out and they do something different and they come back in unison. So that we listen just to a moment. You can hear some of the pizzicato. You can hear some of that kind of tremulous night music. You can hear them come into unison all in the space of about 40 seconds because <laughs> he does not chew there's no cud chewing here. No. <laughs> he definitely presents something and kind of moves forward with it. So let's listen a little bit to uh, this is the first movement. not easy listening <laughs> <No>. <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Um, very well crafted, but like I said, he just kind of throws everything at the wall. Mm -hmm. you know, well, we could get to this when we do our hit or miss, but I'm thinking of, a, of the most obvious comparison would be the Carter Quartet. Uh, but yet for this one, I feel like there's more space. I feel like it breathes a bit more in terms of the, there's more contrast. The Carter is pretty consistently active throughout here you really do have you can tell there's there's a, a slow movement and it is completely different oh, style that second movement is complete contrast yes. from the first movement you can definitely tell it's not one of those that you put on you're like what movement am i in no. you know where you are he's right. he's very classically oriented in terms of the structure and the kind of feel that you have mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and some of the in terms of the harmonies as i mentioned there's a, a, a set here it is a 12 tone set it's not serial but you can see there's some consonant intervals, thirds, and also some dissonance and half steps too. So you kind of have this back and forth. Sometimes you'll hear rather consonant things, especially these unisons that come together, and then otherwise it goes off into really aggressive, that really gnarly kind gnarly of gnarly kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's very virtuosic too. It's incredibly hard to play. Yeah, I would love to see this performed live just to watch the musicians sweat it yeah. out because they're doing so much. You talk about those extended techniques. It's not like, let me sit down and use my bow and let me use my fingernails and use my fingers. Let me do everything that you can in terms of the extended way to play the violin, the viola, the cello. So it's fascinating to see him push the boundaries of what the musicians can do. Completely, completely. And I, that was something Carter didn't wasn't as interested he in was not. the timbre and the effects and the sounds. And that we've noticed in our last episode, talking about George Crumb, that was really a big concern for him and Kirchner before that. So we are starting to get more of the emphasis on timbre, effects, sound than we'd had in the 50s. So Yeah, it's a very different Pulitzer jury and a very different uh, award. Yeah. I want to play just one more section. 
uh, actually from the third movement. So the third movement is probably my favorite movement. Me too. I like it as well. Yeah. <laughs> I have this thing about kind of perpetual motion pieces. Yeah. So it kind of hooks me. Uh, so I wanted to play a little bit of that third movement for you. And you can hear this very thing that you're talking about, this kind of vacillation between the kind of dissonance of a second, a half step, and the more consonants of a third, that you kind of have this sense where he weaves in and out of consonants and dissonance, uh, all the while just kind of moving forward over and over and over again. So here's a little bit of the third movement. It's just like it, it opens up and it flowers. Yep. And then he falls right back yeah. into <laughs> the <laughs> <dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-
doesn't have any kind of connection. It's not current to the times. Uh, Which to me is exactly the opposite of what we were just saying. Yeah. In many yeah. ways, the musical language he was using in 1968 was exactly the musical language that most modern composers were using at the time. Mm -hmm. So to me, what I'm reading in this is he's saying, well, we're in the late 60s. If you think about the revolutions that had happened in popular music, yeah. that it is not of that at all. It oh, is no. completely divorced from everything that was going on in terms of the development of popular music and jazz at the time. And so that's the only way I can think that he could say it's not really of its time. Because in terms of the classical world at the time, this is more of its time than the previous Pulitzer winners from the 1950s. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, think about we when we talked about Crumb, we did say that was a little bit more of its time with its mm -hmm. uh, kind of the topics and the, the sounds and effects and things in there. So maybe that's what he's talking about, too. I don't know. But, yeah, I, I don't understand this one. Uh, I don't quite get it. And then there was another uh, review in Notes that also wasn't particularly positive. It talks about some of the, the, the basic features of it, but then it says, unfortunately, never good. Never good. The opening figures too often resolve into cliches, passages in unisons, octaves, and parallel thirds, and become blocked by repetitive rhythms that move nowhere. Which is, again, a fascinating <laughs> kind of uh, taking what we, the, the very things that we were pointing out and giving them a negative spin. Yeah. So whereas we said, we love the fact that we have these moments of thirds and these moments of unisons because they show you the structure and where you're going. Here it's, well, they shouldn't result to those cliches. As though, I don't know why using thirds as a cliche. No, no. <laughs> but, but exactly that it seems to move nowhere, where in fact that third movement, I think, has... An amazing amount of uh, propulsion. Yeah, it does. It's most exciting to listen to. Well, let's see what the uh, our friends on the board had to say. So the chairman this year was Norman Delajoyo, previous winner, and so he writes to uh, Professor Hohenberg that uh, he gives the award to Husa's String Quartet Number no. Three. It is a potent work, notable for its dramatic impact and its imaginative expertise of its string writing. Okay, that's a lot of what we were talking about. Yeah, exactly. Here. It was commissioned, as we said, for uh, Fine Arts Music Foundation in Chicago. And then he, there's kind of a bio of Husa, and there's that. So now here's the interesting part. Who was the second choice? I was racking my brain about yeah. what other piece from 1968 might have been on the radar of the Pulitzer, and I could not come up with it. Anything. I'm thinking, oh, that's the year of pendulum music by <laughs> Steve Rice. I mean, that's where my head is. So I have, I'm completely at a loss for the second, the runner-up for this year's Pulitzer Prize. But you'll, you'll, you won't be surprised when I tell you. The jury recommends for its second choice the Sinfonia by Luciano Berrio. Oh, I forgot that was 1968. Yeah, this is a boldly experimental work which attempts to break new paths with a large degree of success. Well, frankly, that would have been a better winner, but... <laughs> well, that's, that's the thing that's so interesting about it, yeah. Uh, now that piece has become legendary, it, it's certainly more of its time in a way, mm -hmm. with especially the, the, the Mahler... Well, politically, movement. it speaks to And politically, to with O'King, and yeah, that's true. It's very much of its time, whereas Husses could have been written... You know, whereas also, in, in my mind, uh, the other thing I was thinking is why they awarded it to this piece by Husa when the very same year is when he oh, did yeah. Music for Prague. So how Music mm. for Prague or Sinfonia, that to me is really fascinating that they would award it to a string quartet over either one of those works, which are 
explicitly of their time, explicitly political. Yeah. Uh, but I wonder if it's because the string quartet has that kind of cachet. It does. Whereas it does. a wind band work <laughs> or the very mixed media work of Sinfonia, which has you know speakers and choirs. amplified speakers and choir yeah. and symphony. I mean, it's it's hmm. a little bit more um, varied in terms of the the style than something like this, which is very much uh, of one style and in a classical form. That's a that's a great point because we haven't really seen. I mean, we had the we've had mixed ensemble pieces here and there, but they've always been kind of somewhat traditional. For the most part, yeah. the Pulitzer, even though they've expanded and they're doing more, you know, interesting timbres or yeah. interesting textures electronics. or electronics, mm -hmm. they're still pretty conservative in terms of the form that they want to use. Right. That they're not going to award, you know, a film score. They've done one film score, mm -hmm. and because it happened to be by someone Good they wanted to <laughs> award. Uh, but otherwise, they've been, you know, opera or symphony or concerto or string quartet. They're still mm -hmm. very much in that mindset. It'll be interesting to see how long it takes them to break out of that mindset to move into all the new chamber forms that were in existence in the by the midpoint of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with all that in mind, and kind of the, it's so fascinating. The 60s. This is our last. Well, I guess we have one more work that was written in the 60s that will then... The 1969. Yeah, 1969. But kind of looking back now at our 60s works, we've really spanned quite a, a diversity of pieces. Well, we have that, that middle point of 1964, of 65, yeah. where they just threw up their hands. Yeah. yeah. And, and we've seen that that was a marking, that was a, a shift from everything that came before, which was very much the Nadia Boulanger, mm -hmm. neoclassical American sound, to a much more modern sound here after 1965. So we saw 66, 67, 68. Now we've seen some very fascinating pieces to win. But I'm not sure this is the piece I would have chosen to <laughs> no. win for 1968. No, I think you're right. I think the, there's a bias against band. The band piece, that's not as serious. It's not serious. Yeah. Although Husa did score it for orchestra too. He did later. It was popular enough. But if, if you look at the performances, the band version oh, is still yeah. performed all the time. It's yep. 50 years old, still performed all the time. The string, not so much. No, I don't think I've ever seen it on a concert. Or, yeah. No, only band people play it. But it was an important work in terms of the history of band because here's a serious work for that ensemble as opposed to, hey, let's write another march or yeah. something that's going to be performed. Right? It was in part of that change uh, in the reception of the band, so it's curious that they wouldn't have recognized hmm. it now that we look back right 50 years hindsight sure, and sure. we can see how important it was so is this is string quartet number three a hit or a miss for you i struggle with this <laughs> i really struggle with this um for the reasons we were talking about that i don't think it's the best work to win for 1969 um the third movement blew me away i really enjoy the third movement on the whole i don't know if i'm going to come back to this piece i don't know if it's mm -hmm. one that i'm going to keep coming back to so in that way it's a miss for me but it doesn't mean that i think that it's a bad piece so i right. really struggle with this one what about you? I, I put myself in the same camp, I think, and I'm not just trying to, to you know, <laughs> cop out here of anything, but I, I do think so. It's uh, there's I've it made me want to discover more of his music, Absolutely. which I think was good, and so I found some other pieces to look at. But I'm not sure, even though I do own the LP of it, I did play it last night. Uh, I, I'm not sure I would go back to this particular work. I think if I were teaching an orchestration class, this would be a great. If I'm teaching how to write for strings. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of great stuff in here. But as a piece, I think there's better Husa that, I, or Husa that I'd rather listen yeah, to. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers and our kind of middling response <laughs> to this piece. But as always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, 
where you'll also find links and a short bibliography where you can read more about Carl Husa. Also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at H Pulitzers for links between episodes. Finally, join us next episode when we explore the youngest winner of a Pulitzer Prize in music up to that point and the first ever for a completely electronic score, Whoa. Times a Common by Charles Wernon. Until then, keep listening. Whoa.